Welcome to the Weatherbiz Private Bank Creating the Future podcast series. I'm the Chief Executive, Roger Weatherby. On the 1st of October 2019, we held our second Creating the Future conference. The speakers invited us to consider some of the world's most challenging issues. For more information about Creating the Future, please follow the links in the show notes. I hope you enjoy this talk and thank you for listening. This is our final speaker on this uh, theme, uh, in this particular section, I should say. He's had a fascinating career, actually, uh, as Mr. Boccoletti. Uh, He trained as a physicist and atmospheric scientist. He was a partner at McKinsey, where he founded their Global Water Resource Initiative. And now, specifically on this important theme of water, He's the Chief Strategy Officer at the Nature Conservancy. He's our next speaker. Please welcome to our Creating the Future stage, Giulio Boccoletti. How much water is there uh, on the planet? Let me start there. So imagine taking all of the water that's on the planet and coalescing it into one big bubble. How much do we have? There you go. Can you see that? Right, now the problem is that's mostly salt water. It's all the oceans, seas, etc. So imagine stripping all of that out. Let's just leave the fresh water and see how much we have. Well, that's how much fresh water we have. However, two-thirds of that is locked in ice. West, East, Antarctica and uh, Greenland ice sheet. One third of that is locked in uh, groundwater, most of which is uh, essentially inaccessible. So how much water do we actually have that we experience as water that's available to us in rivers, streams, lakes, uh, wetlands? All right, for those of you who know the geography of the US, look around Atlanta. Can you see that? Okay, so that's how much water we have to play with. It's not finite in the sense that oil is finite, right? We're not going to run out. It gets constantly renewed. But at any given point in time, it's scarce, okay? How are we doing with this scarce resource that surely has something to do with our security as a society and civilization? Well, turns out we're not doing terribly well. Otherwise, I wouldn't have anything to talk about. Um, One thing you can look at, I work in... Uh, in a place that's surrounded by ecologists, and so you can use ecology as a uh, diagnostic of the state of this resource. So you'll know, as James mentioned before, that the natural world has been uh, taking a hit as of late. Over the last 40 years, we've counted the number of animals that live in different systems. It's the Living Planet Index. And so this is what's happened to the marine environment. We've lost about 40% of animals connected to marine environments. Okay? This is not species, it's number of animals, headcount. Similarly, we've lost about uh, 40% of uh, animals that are connected to terrestrial systems. Okay? Now I'm going to show you how many animals we've lost that are connected to freshwater systems. That's amphibians, fish, uh, birds that we've lost over the last 40 years. And I'd like to remind you that, by the way, during that time, we have tripled. Okay? So this is what we've lost in freshwater systems. We've lost over three quarters of all animals that are connected to freshwater systems uh, around the world. This is the same rate of extinction that white rhinos gone through. 
essentially. I'll come back to this. How are we doing in this kind of scarce environment? Well, our security, our water security, has also taken a significant hit. Uh, let me start with, you know, ironically, too much water, even though it's such a scarce, uh, a scarce um, uh, quantity, we still are smaller than it. And this is, I could have shown you Dorian, but uh, this is an equally catastrophic um, hurricane from 2005. Katrina, you'll remember it. These types of systems develop in about two weeks the same amount of energy that the global economy uses in a year. In fact, sorry, 50 times the amount of energy that a, uh, that a global economy uses in a year. And even the richest uh, place on the planet uh, ends up suffering these consequences. This is uh, New Orleans. And this is happening all over the world. Uh, you probably read yesterday 1,600 people died in India because of the most catastrophic monsoon over the last 25 years. This picture here is from Kerala, actually from Kerala last year. 200 people died in this state alone, and 200,000 people lost their homes. But even in extremely engineered environments like Japan, um, this is from uh, last year's summer monsoon, um, and 8 million people were asked to evacuate uh, across uh, July, across 23 uh, prefectures. But it's not just about uh, too much water. So what are we doing with our water security? Well, it's also about droughts and lack of water. And some of you will remember this. This is the campfire from uh, Northern California. There was also a contextual fire in Wolseley in Southern California at the same time. Destroyed about 100,000 acres of land and uh, dozens of people lost their lives, and many, many more lost uh, all of their property. And these types of events, these kind of water-initiated events, end up being rather complicated. And so even though this starts as a drought, it ignites a fire, then what happened was that winds turned uh, on the Thursday of that particular week, and they started blowing towards San Francisco. And so the air quality deteriorated very rapidly. In fact, for that week, San Francisco had the same air quality of Lahore, in uh, Pakistan. I want to bring it to ground, though, and talk to you about the water security problem in the context of our relationship with landscape, you know, sort of harking back to this problem of biodiversity and, and nature. And I'll tell you a story about Santa Fe, New Mexico, New Mexico in particular. I'm going to talk about this rather remarkable ecosystem that uh, spreads from New Mexico all the way up to British Columbia. It's a ponderosa pine ecosystem. Pinus ponderosa is probably the most common uh, tree in North America. And of late, it's suffered significant consequences from a change in climate. Uh, temperatures on average in the system have gone up by about two degrees. It's gone incredibly dry. Um, and over the years, although it looks incredibly beautiful, it's been managed for density. In other words, all naturally occurring fires that were low intensity and were typically maintaining the ecosystem have been suppressed over the years. And so let me bring you down to the Rio Grande watershed, which is this thing here, which sits right in the middle of this ecosystem. Uh, there are two cities that you might have heard about. One is Santa Fe, the other is Albuquerque in New Mexico. They depend on this uh, uh, river system. And on the, 6th, on the 26th of June, 2011, at uh, Las Conchas, which is a small place near Los Alamos, where the experiments used to be done uh, years and years ago, a tree fell on a power line and ignited a fire. This was about 1 p.m. Okay? Uh, by, um, the fire started burning, and uh, this is what it looked like. It was moving at about an acre per second. An acre per second. By the end of that day, it had burned through 43,000 
acres of landscape. By the end of the week, it had destroyed 150,000 acres of land, becoming the, up to that point, the biggest fire in, uh, in uh, the history of New Mexico. And what it left behind uh, was this, absolutely nothing. The whole thing was pulverized. And in fact, uh, the fire burned so hot that soil vaporized, right? So you could have, burned, you could have melted steel in that, uh, in that fire. It was almost 200,000 acres of, of land that was completely lost. And then, two or three weeks later, uh, it started raining. And as it started raining, all of the ash got brought down from the burnt area and went towards the Rio Grande. Right? And at one, but this is not where water goes by, yeah, usually, by the way. And at one point, these waters reached uh, the second story of the buildings that they were encountering. This was really catastrophic. And what was left um, after that was this, which was a 21-meter plug of mud at the entrance uh, of the Rio Grande. 21 meters, so this room is probably two to three times the height of this room in mud, okay? Um, but why am I telling you this? Well, because downstream from that was the reservoir of those two cities that I was telling you about. So the reservoir filled up with all this ash. That's where the reservoir was. Now, where did this uh, fire happen? Well, um, I remind you of the two cities. So how do they get their water? Well, the Rio Grande comes down there, and then Santa Fe pipes water from the Rio Grande down into the city. And then you have another water project up in the very far uh, left corner, which is called the San Juan Sharma uh, Water Project, that conveys water into the Sharma River, which is a tributary of the Rio Grande, and then all of that goes down to Albuquerque. So you see what happened? The fire burnt right through the middle of the water system of the state. Now, if you think of the water system as the treatment works and the likes, then of course this was out in the middle of a forest, but in fact, that fire burned through the water security system um, of the state. And this is what came out of the tap of Albuquerque for four weeks after. And so suddenly there was no water, and this was actually um, a federal disaster. So there's this really deep connection between the state of the ecosystem outside of these cities and the water security of people in these cities. This is not just a developed country problem. This is not just a problem that relates to you know, this kind of rather unusual for Europeans um, ecosystem. So I'll take you to the Tana River in Kenya. The Tana River is a very important river. supplies 70% of the hydropower of, um, uh, of Kenya, and it also supplies all of the water of uh, Nairobi. And along its banks, there are 100,000 smallholders that grow tea. And as they grow tea, they don't terrace, so the topsoil uh, of their farms washes into the river and then it reaches the city where it clogs up the only water treatment works of Nairobi, which then goes down and doesn't supply water 24-7. And people have to then switch uh, to the jerry cans that you've seen upstairs. And of course, those jerry cans in urban systems becomes vectors for disease, cholera, gastroenteric problems, et cetera, et cetera. And so suddenly, what you had, which is, was a sustainability of agriculture problem, turns into a public health uh, problem. Okay. And so it's for all of these reasons that people have been concerned about water security and the water crisis. But it, hopefully you'll see that this is not just about, it's not only about the problem of supplying clean drinking water, this is a problem of sustainability of the entire 
system. And that's why our friends um, at the World Economic Forum, they tend to rate risks in terms of likelihood and impact. And for 10 years running, they've done this. And typically, you get things like you know, orbital debris, which you know, I don't really stay up at night worrying about. Uh, but then you go into things like entrenched organized crime, maybe fiscal imbalances, and then at the very top, they typically face the water crisis. And that's because the water crisis, this manifestation of the failure of the climate system and our failure to manage our environment to achieve security for ourselves. Okay? Still with me? Okay. Now, if I were to stop here, this would be a distinctly depressing uh, talk and in sort of line with a long stream of uh, troubled, troubling news. But I do have a um, kind of silver lining to this story, if you will allow me, in the last few minutes. I have a proposition here. And that proposition is that nature is, in fact, our security infrastructure that we ought to treat nature as our security infrastructure, in fact, as our water security infrastructure. That if we can protect landscapes such as this in the northwest of the United States, for example, and we can invest in nature to avoid the sorts of problems that I just described to you, we can actually achieve water security, but we can also restore that uh, rather tragically lost uh, biodiversity, and we may get a whole bunch of other ancillary benefits along the way. For example, the storage of carbon in those ecosystems that would then thrive uh, in the watershed. And in order to illustrate this point, I'll give you an example of where this type of approach has been working for 100 years. How many of you have lived in New York? Oh, quite a few. Not, that many, not as many as I thought. Well, um, New York is an interesting place. It's not the only place where this is true, but it's a very iconic place where this is true. New York gets its water uh, gravity-fed from protected catchments out in, uh, in upstate uh, New York. Two major catchments, the Catskills up there on the, uh, on the far left, and then the Croton Reservoir, which is the kind of older system. And these are forested uh, systems. They're protected. And because they're protected, uh, they, uh, New York gets what the EPA calls an avoidance filtration determination, which is a wonky way of saying that they don't have to filter their water because it's so clean it comes out of, of this uh, catchment. And that water then gravity feeds into the system and gets to New York City where it comes out of any one of your, um, of your taps. And it turns out that this system is economically viable. Because if New York were to do the alternative, which is not protect the watershed, but rather rely on engineered uh, solutions, they would have to invest somewhere between 8 to $10 billion to build a filtration plant. Whereas the protection of nature is a program that costs about $1.5 billion over 10 years. And so it's actually an economically eminently viable way of protecting uh, the environment. So here's the sort of solution in a box, if you will, if we manage to take situations where we have cities that are surrounded by water, and remember, 90% of the population of the planet lives within 10 kilometers of a body of water, right? So imagine we can take a place like this and protect and manage appropriately the working landscapes uh, and protect ecosystems. In other words, invest in nature. Maybe we can actually achieve some degree of uh, water security. Now, is this some tree-hugging guy sitting here telling you that there's a piped-up Pollyannish dream possible? Actually, I don't think so. And we have evidence, not only that this was possible from New York, but evidence that it can also solve some very severe uh, water security issues. Take uh, Cape Town as an example. So many of you will have heard the story of Cape Town last year. Day zero, right? It almost ran out of water come July. 
There was a bunch of misplans uh, uh, in the reservoir system that meant that the city was running out of water. Well, it turns out that the watershed within which Cape Town is based is full of invasive plant species. And those invasive plant species, eucalyptus and other, drink two months of water a year. Two months of water a year for a city that was less than a month away from running out of water. And so if you were to restore the Fernborn, which is the original ecosystem around Cape Town, it is a very cheap, employment-heavy intervention that would actually uh, uh, reduce the water insecurity of that, uh, of that city by one-sixth. Right? And so it turns out that we have an opportunity to do this everywhere, almost everywhere on the planet. I mapped the, all the cities that have more than 100,000 people uh, across the world, and four-fifths of them, four-fifths of them, four-fifths of them, uh, can get better, more secure supply of water if they invest in their catchments, and a good quarter of them, by sheer improvement of water quality, could pay for it. In other words, it is economically efficient to invest in the, in the catchment instead of building the additional filtration system. Uh, you can get a return on that investment in at least a quarter of the cities that have this potential. And if I had more time, I'd tell you how you do the other three quarters. And the good news is that's already happening. There are a number of cities around the world where this is already an intervention that's been adopted. I can tell you more if you're interested. Uh, but I think a movement is happening. Nature-based solutions, which some of you will have heard about, they're not just the second best option. They're actually often the best option uh, to achieve our water security. This requires a change in paradigm, but it's one that's happening today. And so I'll close by saying, you know, Mark asked this morning why I was standing in the river. I don't really have a good explanation for that, other than I felt I should prove my commitment to water. And this was the day after a substantial rain. And if you know anything about the Thames water system, you know that required some degree of courage. Thank you very much for taking the time. Thank you, Julia. Thank you. And, um, and in fact, Julia, please come back and join us, but also with Laure and uh, with James as well, and uh, Mr. James Thornton, as they rejoin us on the stage. Why don't we give them a round of applause for being three brilliant speakers. Thank you. This is the sort of thing where I'd like to just sort of sit back and quiz them uh, for an hour with your help, but we've just got a few minutes, thanks to your questions on Glycer and then uh, more. Quickfire, James, a question comes in. Are you undertaking action against the government in... Brazil? Not yet, uh, is the answer. Uh, so uh, what I was uh, sharing was one of our ambitions. Uh, and uh, we're not active in Brazil yet, but it was uh, an extremely uh, interesting invitation uh, from the prosecutor general of Brazil to come in and help her uh, think of uh, the, the, the most creative possible uh, cases to bring in Brazil. Uh, there's a case I want to bring against the government of Brazil, uh, talking to some Brazilian judges that we've worked with by bringing them into China. Uh, Brazil and a number of other uh, countries uh, in um, South America and Central America have a very interesting uh, provision in their constitutions, which requires that natural resources uh, be used uh, or determined to be used by the government with the rights of future generations in mind. Uh, it's a provision that we don't have in European uh, mm -hmm. constitutions, uh, and I would love to test that in Brazil, uh, because clearly uh, the decisions by, by the government to encourage deforestation in Brazil are not being taken uh, with the rights which are enshrined in the constitution of future generations in mind. So the answer is I would love to and hope to soon. 
Excellent. Thank you, James. Good luck with that. Uh, question for you, Law. You can see it up on the screen. Uh, when are we going to see the loop model in action? In action. So we, you can see the model in action already in New York, some of the states around, um, and in Paris. If you know people there, please tell them to join loop, myboutiqueloop.fr or loopstore.com. Uh, so these are pilots where we act as the retailer, and that's an e-commerce uh, shopping platform where you can order your products in a durable uh, version. And we're bringing a pilot, we're going to start a pilot uh, here in London uh, early next year, so uh, between January and March. Okay, and on that London pilot, who do you most need to meet to take it to the next step? So we need uh, brand owners, uh, so we need more brands so we can build okay. uh, really an offer that uh, will convince as many consumers to move from disposability to durability, uh, and we need consumers, so we, as you know, uh, every purchasing decision is a, a vote for the future uh, you want to have, so we're also going to need people to, uh, to test the platform and be consumers in the Loop platform. Got it. Thank you, Lo. Uh, Julio, um, a question so good it's come through twice. Do you think water companies should be nationalised? It's on the agenda of the opposition here in Britain. What do you reckon? Um, I'm sort of agnostic about ownership, to be fair. I think it's important that they're corporatized, meaning that they actually account for their costs and their full capital costs mm -hmm. in their balance sheet. And the reason that's important because we, I believe that th those assets, those landscapes, are competitive and comparable to hard infrastructural ass mm -hmm. assets. And the only way we'll see that is if people are doing a full accounting of, of their balance sheet. The question of ownership is, once those are well run in sort of legal system that function, the question of ownership is, I think, is a question of efficiency and, and sort of depends on the country. Excellent. So we have not enough minutes for questions from the room. It could be to any or all of our speakers. I see a hand here. Now, why not get the handheld mic over? That can never go wrong. Uh, there you go. Uh, ready? <laughs> oh, well done. <laughs> Doesn't seem to be on, but... Yes, yeah. we're on. Um, for law, two questions. One, what's the price differential of your products? And second of all, um, given the issues about water insecurity and water inequality, how do you square that with the need to clean the products and how do you do that? Yes, very good question. So on the price, um, so as I explained, there is a difference, which is that uh, you put a deposit, so you pay a deposit on the packaging that you can get back if you stop uh, consuming the product or if you want to change brands. Uh, in terms of the uh, product itself, uh, the idea is that uh, it's the same price as the disposable version. So now to start with, there might be differences in prices because we have very small volumes, um, but uh, the goal is that it's as accessible as disposability. The only difference is the deposit. Uh, that, um, so that can be anything from a few cents to a few pounds, depending on the type of packaging. Um, and on the second question on the water, um, indeed it's a very good question because in our loop system we now, we don't recycle, we clean uh, the packaging, so we have to set up the infrastructures and uh, we're working with uh, several partners on, on that. Uh, TerraCycle in, um, here in the UK and in other few markets have a partnership with uh, Suez, the waste management company. They also have a water business, so they're helping us thinking about uh, all these questions about uh, uh, water use and uh, 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 water recycling in the 
process, so we make sure that uh, uh, the entire platform is uh, more beneficial uh, for the environment from a, okay. a, a life cycle analysis. Thank you, Now, we just have so little time. Uh, I'm happy to see Gabriel. Why don't we chuck it down here? There you go. Okay, quick question for you, James. Uh, what do you wish you could do if you had more funding? Mm -hmm. uh, marvelous question, thank you. And back to the Brazil question, why are we not doing something in Brazil now is no funding to work in Brazil. If we had more funding, uh, so I mentioned David Gilmore was very generous to uh, give us the beginning of uh, what were uh, the 100 million uh, fighting fund that we're looking to put together. Uh, then uh, I would uh, commit to trying to stop all the new coal-fired power stations in uh, East, Central, uh, and Western Asia and going into Africa uh, and uh, increase the, the work on biodiversity. So working with China, working with Brazil to try and halt biodiversity destruction. And meanwhile, trying to write good laws, uh, as we do. No, great question. Thank you for the answer. We just don't have uh, longer, I'm afraid, so I must cut it short there, except to ask um, for you to join us during our tea break imminently. We can continue these conversations. But Law, uh, Julia, and of course, James, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, James. For more information about creating the future, please follow the links in the show notes. I hope you enjoy this talk and thank you for listening.